The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. look at God's Word, we want to look at God's Word along the, the lines of the theme that has been set out for, for tonight's service, which you can see on the front of your bulletin. God is our potter, and us the clay in His hands. And I know that I can say, not just as a pastor here at Westminster, but also as, as a parent of children who are a part of the body of, of Christ here, how thankful I am for each one of the people in our congregation who have given their time and their energy and their efforts for our children. It really is a blessing to see God's people declaring God's goodness and salvation to the next generation. And the pattern that Scripture sets out, we see fulfilled in this congregation, and I I know that my children benefit from it. Here's our theme from Isaiah 64, 8, where Isaiah declares that we are clay. We are clay in the hands of God, who is our potter, potter who shapes us, who makes us and works us into the people he wants us to be. Now, growing up, growing up, I remember visiting Hale Farm. Hale Farm was a village where men and women dressed up in colonial garb and demonstrated how early Americans lived and, and manufactured things, how they, they made a variety of the things that they may need. And it's probably very similar to the Landis Valley Museum that's right up the road here uh, that you can go and, and, and visit. And I remember watching, and you'd travel around the village, and you'd see the, see the, the people making different things. I remember watching the, the woman drip her candles out of the, the wax, and I remember watching the blacksmith shape his, his iron in his, in his blacksmith shop. I remember the, my favorite was the glass blower, who would heat the glass up and blow through the pipe, and you'd see the glass expand, and that was, that was undoubtedly my favorite. But of all of the types of, of craftsmanship that were displayed at, at Hale Farm, and I'm sure at, at, at Landis Valley Museum as well, there seems to be something particularly personal or intimate about the work of the potter, of the potter who shapes the clay. And you can picture, many of you I'm sure have seen a potter at work, you, you picture the potter spinning the wheel, using their fingers getting their fingers dirty in the actual work of the clay and molding and shaping and making the pottery as they, as they press here and press there with their fingers. An art form that I have no knowledge of or understanding, but produces beautiful work. There's no hammer. There's no blowing through the pipe. Their fingers are directly involved in shaping the clay. And I think that Scripture, God in His wisdom, takes this analogy of a potter molding the clay, such an apt picture of God who is personally and intimately involved in the shaping and the making and the molding of His people. And that's the metaphor we have tonight. Isaiah actually brings up this metaphor of God as a potter shaping His people who are clay three different times in, in the book of Isaiah. Twice, 
he, he mentions it clearly referencing creation. In Isaiah 29.16, Isaiah 29.16, Isaiah condemns Israel for rebelling against God's law, and he asks, Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, the thing that the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding? It's a rhetorical question, and of course the answer is no, of course not. God is the creator, he is the potter, and the clay has no right to question him. Later in Isaiah 45, 9, Isaiah says again, does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles on it, what are you doing? In each of these verses, Isaiah is reminding Israel that God is their creator. God is the one who has made them and shaped them according to his will. And so, and so his creations don't have any right to question his law or the work of his hands. They don't have the right to go their own way instead of the way of their creator. That's clearly where, where Isaiah is going with the first two uses of this analogy, the potter and the clay. But when we come to Isaiah 64, 8, when we come to Isaiah 64, 8, there's a different direction that God is taking this reference to the potter and the clay. He's using the same analogy, but in a slightly different way. Because in this passage, Isaiah is speaking on behalf of Israel, and he's appealing to God as the Father and the Redeemer of Israel. He's appealing to God as the one who has reached out and taken and molded his people to be the special nation that he has called to be his own. The section begins in Isaiah 63, 16, when Isaiah says, You are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, and our redeemer from old is your name. Is, is your name. And you see what Isaiah is saying here. God is the true father of the nation of Israel. It's not Abraham. Abraham isn't the source of Israel. Abraham isn't the one who has really made Israel what it is. God is the father of Israel. God is the one who has taken Israel, a people that was a small people of no repute, and has taken them and made them his own special inheritance. God is their father who has shaped them as his own people and his own nation. He is their source, the one who made them and called them. He is also the Father who watched over them and redeemed them and saved them. And so there's a picture in God's shaping pottery, not just of creation, but also of calling, shaping, molding, rescuing, redeeming, and saving so that everything that the nation of Israel is and everything that they have by way of identity is God's people who were rescued and saved from Egypt and Exodus all goes back to this shaping work of God their Father. And so when we get to Isaiah 64, 8, this is what Isaiah is picking up on. God is Father and Redeemer, and he says, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. And here we, we hear Isaiah saying, yes, God is our potter in the sense that he created us in the first place. But the emphasis here, here is that God is Israel's potter in this more specific and more personal sense, that he made them to be his own people. He's redeemed them to be His own. And He's crafted them to be the people of His name, to be exactly the people that He wanted them to be. This doesn't take much application to think about the lives of our children and our young people and to think of the work of God 
personally involved in shaping them and molding them to be who he wants them to be. It doesn't surprise us, I don't think, to find that the New Testament, although it doesn't use in the same sense the language of potter and clay in this sense, it clearly emphasizes once again when we come to the church, God is our Father. He is the one who shapes His people. He is the one who calls them, redeems them, molds them, remakes them, transforms them. This whole potter work, creating and shaping work, is done by God our Father. You might think of, you might think of Paul when he says in Ephesians 1 that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And that in love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Paul is talking about the calling and predestining and planning work that God makes His people to be just the way He wants them. Or maybe you think of Paul in Philippians 1.6 when Paul talks about the active work of God in His people's lives. Paul says that God who began a good work in you will bring the work to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here's God, His fingers actively and personally involved in shaping and bringing to completion the work that He started. Peter then echoes the same truths as Isaiah with a slightly different analogy. When when he writes in 1 Peter 2, you yourselves are like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And he goes on, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. You see again the, the, the metaphor of God as the builder taking His people as precious stones and building them into a building. He's crafting them, building His church, building His people, His chosen people, this royal priesthood, this holy nation that He as Father has called, redeemed, rescued, and now shapes exactly as He wants them, exactly according to His will. We could look at many other passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but the point throughout Scripture is the same. God's people look to God as their Father, their Father Potter, who is making His people into clay pots that will display His glory, that will display His glory to the world now and display His glory in His presence forevermore. I hope we see the great hope that this truth gives us. And as you look at the church and as you look at at your own life, as you look at perhaps the children of the church, our children, your grandchildren perhaps, Nothing can give us greater hope in the future, individually of our children and grandchildren, but, but especially as a whole, as, as the future of, of the church, of God's people. Nothing can give us greater hope than this, that God is the potter who is personally and intimately at work in His church and individually in the lives of His people. The final outcome is guaranteed because God is perfect in power perfect in wisdom, perfect in goodness and beauty. I don't know if you've ever watched a potter at work, but I remember, I remember watching the potter, the woman who was demonstrating pottery at this farm that I went to growing up. And if you've watched it, you know that in the process of making the clay pot, it doesn't really look like a clay pot for a long time. 
The potter is working at the clay what seems like hours, and it still doesn't look like a clay pot. In fact, I remember there were some times where I've been watching the potter for a while, and they're pressing, this lady was pressing with her fingers, and she started shaping something, and finally I remember saying, oh, it finally looks like a pot now. And just when I thought it started looking like a pot, she did something and messed the whole thing up again. And I thought, what did she do? It was just looking like a pot, and then she made some press with her fingers, and it doesn't look like a pot anymore. It looks like a mess. But of course, the confidence that I had that a beautiful pot was going to come out of that rested in who the potter was. I knew that this person was skilled at her craft. And so I trusted that even though I had no idea what was going on on that wheel, that something beautiful was going to come out of it. And when we look at the lives of the church, we look at the people in the church, sometimes we look at the church as a whole, and sometimes we look at individual members of the church, and sometimes we think, what is going on? How in the world is this going to turn out? Is something good or beautiful going to really come from this? But our confidence isn't what the person looks like at a particular stage in the journey. Our confidence comes from God. God who is the perfect father and perfect potter. We trust him in his work because he shapes his people exactly the way he wants them. We trust him because he is all-powerful, all-wise, and he is at work in the church, shaping and refining his church to be his bride who will be spotless, to the praise of the glory of its God and Father. And so our confidence in God gives us hope as we wait as parents, as teachers. I'm sure that our Sunday school teachers and children and youth volunteers have this doubting going through their minds at many stages in the journey. But as teachers, as parents, as volunteers, our confidence is in God as we wait for His will to be worked out perfectly in a church and individually in His people. We have great hope from God as the perfect potter. But I want to see a second thing tonight. I want to take a minute. See, not only do we know from Scripture that God works in His people, but the second question is, okay, if God is the potter, if He's at work in His people, how does He do it? What are the tools or instruments that God uses in this process of shaping His people? And I want to look at Ephesians 4. If you have your Bibles, you might look at Ephesians 4 for a minute. Ephesians 4 And I want to read verses 11 through 16. God is the potter. God is at work shaping his people. But what are the tools that he uses? Listen or or follow along as I read from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. We read, And he, that is God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ." from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here in Ephesians 4, 
Paul tells us that God has crafted the church to be a community of people, a community of people with different gifts that all serve one another, so that as each one of us serves one another, we grow up into maturity in Christ in ways that we would never do on our own. Much of this passage is describing the maturity or the end goal, this growing up into maturity in Christ. But at the beginning of the passage, he lists gifts that God has given each member of the church, which will equip the church to grow into maturity. And he mentions apostles and prophets and evangelists, shepherds and teachers, each of which use their gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry. But I don't want you, when we read that list, it can kind of sound like Paul is specifically talking about the fact that God has called some special leaders some apostles and, and preachers and teachers, and, and those especially gifted people are sent to the church to teach them and bring them to maturity. But that's not really the point of what Paul's saying. Because if you look back at verse 7, this passage comes in the ver- context of verse 7, and look what verse 7 says. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul here mentions apostles and and preachers and teachers specifically, but his point is that every member of the congregation, every member of God's people has been given gifts of grace to be used for the benefit and the blessing and the upbuilding of God's people. And so each one of us, every single one of God's people has been given gifts in accordance with Christ's grace, which we are to use to serve one another in the church so that we come together serving, blessing, and ministering to one another so that Christ's people are growing up in Christ. I want to mention just two, two implications, I think, that come from this. First, I think that Paul makes it very clear that every single one of us is called to be ministering to God's people in the church. Now, ministry may look different in different contexts, and we, sh- we should expect that because each person has been given different gifts of grace. For many in our church, I know that you have been gifted and called in children and youth ministries because I see you ministering in those contexts with great effectiveness and with God's strength and grace. For others of you, your ministry may be an individual context, in one-on-one discipleship and encouragement and comfort. For others of you, there's gifts of leadership and service. And I know many of you serve with safety team and deacons and many and many other many others ministries. But Paul makes it clear that every single one of us is called to ministry. I'm sure that many, almost all of you have probably been involved in some nonprofit organization or some volunteer or service organization at some time. And so many of you are probably familiar with the well-known principle in the nonprofit world. It's, I think, known as the 80-20 principle. The 80-20 principle in the nonprofit world is that 80% of the work gets done by 20% of the volunteers or 20% of the people. And it's a complaint. It's a complaint that we have a small group of really dedicated volunteers and then a very large group of people who don't do anything. And I'm sure that it's a temptation for that to be the case in the church at times. But Paul is calling us to a very different model. This is not the way that God intended it. You see, Paul starts out Ephesians 4 by urging all of us to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And in verse 7, he says that we've been called to one body, one Lord, and one spirit, with one faith and one baptism. But even though we've been called to one body, we still have many different gifts of grace 
that God has given us. And so the calling is for each person who's been called to this one body to contribute with ministry and service using the gifts that God has given so that the body may grow up into maturity in Christ. I also want to make sure, though, that you take notice of verse 16. Look look closely at verse 16 and what Paul says. He's talking about the whole body growing up into its head, into its head Christ. But notice when he says, he says, from the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, which makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This building up process depends on each part working properly. If all of those with with diaconal gifts served, but nobody with gifts of children's ministry served, each part wouldn't be working properly. And if everyone with children's ministry gifts served, but no one with individual gifts of ministry and comfort and encouragement served, a huge piece would be missing. And so the call that Paul's giving all throughout this passage is that every one of God's people has been gifted and graced for ministry. And the call is for each one of us to be serving one another and ministering with those gifts so that God's people will be growing up into maturity in Christ. Paul Tripp uh, put it this way in one of his books. He said, When God calls you to himself, he calls you to be a servant, an instrument in his redeeming hands. And all of his children are called into ministry. The church isn't an organization or an event that we attend, but a calling that shapes our whole lives as we minister to one another as part of our calling as God's people. So I want to use this both as an encouragement to each one of us, That church is not something we come and sit in the pew. It is a calling to minister. But I also want to take this as an opportunity to thank the many volunteers that that work with my children and the youth and children of this church for using the gifts that God has given you to contribute to this process of our children and youth growing up into maturity in Christ. The second thing that I want to make notice from this passage is I think one of the most important principles for us to see about God's method of working in the church. Because the second thing that Paul makes very clear from this passage is that the paid leaders of the church are not the ones who do the majority of ministry in God's people. The key role of God's called leaders, those that we perhaps think of as the the paid staff or maybe the pastors, the teachers, is not to do the majority of ministry, but to equip all of the others in the body for their works of ministry. You see what Paul says. Read verse 11 very carefully, followed by 12. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to do what? Not to do all the ministry, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I hope the hundreds, and I think it is around 300 volunteers who work in nursery children and youth ministry here at Westminster, I hope that the volunteers here at Westminster never feel like you are volunteering to help support me in my ministry or to help Mary Jo in her ministry. I hope it's exactly the opposite, that the volunteers of our church feel like the staff is here to enable you and equip you and encourage you in your work of ministry because it is the work of the individual members of the congregation and their ministry which leads to the growing maturity of the body of Christ. 
Paul Tripp argues this way. He says, Christ has given his church leaders not to bear the full ministry load of the body of Christ, but to equip each other member to join in God's work of transformation. And he says this, and I think all of us recognize the truth of this. He says, no local church could ever hire enough staff to meet all the ministry needs of all of its people at every given point in the week. No staff could meet all those needs. But that's not the biblical model. The biblical model is to call leaders who train, who equip the other members for ministry. Paul Tripp says the biblical model is much more informal, personal ministry that goes on all the time throughout the week. And public ministry is meant to train God's people for the personal ministry that is the lifestyle of the body of Christ. The ministry is the ministry of the congregation, of the body of God's church. As we serve one another and minister to one another and so lead to this building up of the body of Christ. God's work is done by all the saints when each person is serving in ministry as he has been gifted. I think it's in light of these truths. God is at work in his people, but his people are the instruments of the work that he's carrying out. That I want to say thank you to the volunteers in Westminster's youth ministry. And I praise God for his wisdom, his wisdom in giving gifts to each one of you and calling you to minister here to our children and to our youth. And as our Father works in His people and molds them and shapes them and crafts them to be the work of His hands, He's using you. He's using you as the tools to bring about His finished product. And the great hope that we have for our children and youth is spelled out right here in this passage in Ephesians. Right here in Ephesians 4, as God uses you in the lives of people, we're told that they're going to be built up as the body of Christ that they'll attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. They reach mature manhood to the measure of the fullness of Christ, that they cease to be children tossed to and fro by the waves and winds of doctrine, that they may grow up in Him in every way into their head Christ. Isn't this our prayer for our children and our youth? This is the vision we have. This is our longing and our desire that we and our children would grow up into this picture. And it happens as God uses His people that He's gifted, and they, each part, work together in ministry. What a glorious God to come up with this plan, who uses His power and His promise to bring about the work that He's bringing about. You know, as part of this communicants process, I have the privilege of reading the stories of our seventh graders and their faith. And I want to end with this note of encouragement to you. Because I think at times... When we staff our Sunday schools on Sunday morning or our youth groups on Wednesday night, it might seem sometimes like, well, we're a church. We have to staff Sunday school. So who can we find to fill in for Sunday school? Of course, we wouldn't want to not have Sunday school. But with so many families that are doing their job well and so many families that are solid Christian families, the question of, has to come into our minds sometimes of, is Sunday school really making a difference in people's lives? Are our children really changed or different because of my work in Sunday school in a church that's already full of solid Christian families. And I want to affirm to you that yes, you are effective and you are making a difference in the lives of our children. And I know it because in seventh grade, I have seventh grade students writing about specific Sunday school lessons that they had in first grade. 
in fourth grade, in sixth grade, that impacted them in their walk with Christ. I had a testimony this year. A student said, I grew up in a Christian family, and I always knew the gospel in general. But it was in first grade, in one particular Sunday school class, that I realized what sin actually meant, and that I needed a Savior, and I accepted Him as my Savior after that. We had another testimony of a girl who said, I was actually not sure that I I really wanted anything to do with Christianity, even though I was in church all the time. But as I went through Sunday school, it was what my Sunday school teachers said to me as I got into the older elementary grades that I finally realized, no, I need Christ to be my Savior. And I could tell you more stories from these testimonies, but I want you to know that God is using the work of you, His people, in ministry, in our church, to bring about this vision that's here in Ephesians 4, bringing up children into mature manhood in Christ, the fullness of the knowledge of the Son of God. And we owe all praise, thanks, and glory to God because He's the potter doing the work. But thanks and praise to you who are being faithful to use the gifts God's given you in this service. I want to pray for us and then we'll sing our closing hymn. Father, I'm so grateful that our confidence is ultimately in you. It's in your work as God, our Father Potter, who has rescued us and redeemed us and shaped us into the people that you want us to be. I'm so grateful for how you've gifted your people. And I pray that our congregation would be one where we could say that each part is doing its job as you've gifted it for the work of ministry for the building up of the body, ultimately to the praise and glory of the name of Christ. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.